Good morning. How y'all doing? <clears throat> Welcome to Mission Point. My name's Mike. <clears throat> I don't I don't speak a lot. Maybe once a year. If I do a good job once a year, not so good once every two years. So I'm on the two-year cycle right now. But welcome to Mission Point. If you're new, glad to have you here. I happen to have one of my colleagues here. I'm honored to have Jerry and his wife here. It's great to see you, Jerry. And um, if you come all the time, hey, welcome back home. Uh, Meyer and I have been attending Mission Point for five years, and um, we're involved in a missional community, and we also teach third grade, which is probably our most important role here at the church. And recently, um, our mission was featured, as uh, the African mission was featured, and we asked the kids to draw a picture of what reminded them of Africa, and I looked down and looked at what one of the kids was drawing. Mike Taylor, the nine-fingered African missionary. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's my claim to fame in the third grade. <clears throat> So if you've been with us, we've been doing a series called One Another's, and uh, we've had three different speakers, and um, you know that there are over 50 references in this great book, 50 references that were to do certain things to one another. Uh, we're to love one another, to be of one mind with one another, uh, we're to bear one another's burdens, we're to encourage one another. We're to come together, as we're doing this morning with one another, and we're to greet each other. <clears throat> you know, three times in the New Testament, it tells us to greet each other with a kiss. Did anybody kiss anybody today at church? Nobody? I'm going to share that in a story here in a minute with you all. So when Kondo asked me to speak two months ago, I immediately went to Ephesians 5 and verse 21. that says we're to be submissive to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. I don't know. I just like that verse came to me right away. Imagine what our marriages would be like if we would practice this verse right here, if you're married. So one of my favorite things to do in life is to interview people who are 90 and above. And I always ask them the same three or four questions. And one of them that I ask is, how do you stay married so long if you're married? So I recently had a 90-year-old 91 year that I had a chance to talk to. <clears throat> She'd been married 68 years. Husband was still alive. And I said, what's the secret to a long, happy marriage? To which she retorted, listen to one another, <clears throat> and no one's the boss. He ain't the boss. I ain't the boss. And I thought, this old, wise person summarized my message in one simple phrase. He ain't the boss and I ain't the boss. Imagine what our homes would be like if we practiced this mutual respect and submission to one another. Imagine what our country would be like today. Just imagine if we practiced this work, what the world would be like. But before I get into my verse, I want to make sure you remember what you've been taught. So we've had Pastor Kondo, Pastor Jeff, and Taylor Long speak to us about one another's. What do you remember? Don't answer me. What do you remember? Here's the bigger question. What did you apply? So we get this knowledge, we get this information. 
We're kind of in an information overload society, but have we used it? Let me tell you what they taught us. They taught us that we're to love one another even when the person we're loving isn't lovable. One of them taught us that we're to spur or provoke one another to do love and good deeds. One of them taught us that we're to pray for each other and we're to confess our sins to each other. One taught that we're to bear each other's burdens, and one of them taught that we should teach and admonish one another. So I can tell you right now, here's my hope for today. This is why I've invested the time I have. That you would be touched and motivated to act upon something you've already heard or something that you hear today. Because that's what makes it worth it. That's what makes investing the time studying these passages worth it. And that you would see your workplace and you would see your home as the place to implement the information that you're getting from this pulpit right here. So if you know Jesus Christ and he's your personal Savior, great. If you don't, we want to tell you about that. So that's like paramount. That's the most important thing. So after the service, I'll be standing up here and elders come on up. And if you want to know more about that, if you're struggling in your life and you want to talk to one of us, come on up and talk to us. But if you're that person in the crowd, and I don't know, I can't see your hearts, you're doing really great. I, want, I hope, this is my hope, that you'll do greater things for the kingdom of God. That you'll do greater things. So I believe that the only way this information makes an impact is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sure, I've invested a ton of time studying. I've invested a ton of time praying. I have talked through this message ten times. But it isn't my stories, my illustrations, or if I can speak eloquently, it isn't that, but it's God who will make a difference in your life. So let's, let's invoke that now. Let's pray that together. And I never pray canned prayers, but I'm going to do that for you this morning. This is from Richard Foster, and it's called, Be the Gardener of My Soul. Spirit of the living God, be the gardener of my soul. For so long I've been waiting, silent and still, experiencing a winter of soul. But now, in the strong name of Jesus, I dare to ask. I dare to ask. Clear away any dead growth of the past. Break up the hard clods of custom and routine. Stir in the rich compost of vision and challenge and bury deep in my soul this implanted word. The words that I hear today, God, put them deep in my soul. Cultivate and water and tend my heart. Until new life buds and opens and flowers. Amen. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to everyone out of reverence for Christ. And if you, if you study this book, if you read it, you know that the very next verse, and if you've studied this passage at all, your, your brain's already jumped to the next verse. Because it talks about submission in marriage. And if you go a little further, it talks about children being in submission submission to their parents. And if you go further yet, it talks about masters and servants being submissive to one another. But what I want to do today is I want to go 
backwards. I don't want to go forwards because that passage is for another day and time, but I want to go backwards. But before I do, I was at my desk two days ago and my 10-year-old granddaughter came up and said, Poppy, what are you doing? And I said, studying a verse for Sunday. What is the verse? I said, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. What does that mean? And you all know I couldn't answer her question so that a 10-year-old could understand it. So we began a discussion about talking about our rights and our privileges as U.S. citizens. And and what does it mean to submit to another person? And this is what a 10-year-old and I came up with. It's not theoretical. It's not theological. It's extremely practical. We decided that our rights and our freedoms are important. But we must willingly give up our rights for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what our culture would be like if people fought that way? Yes, my right is important. My right to free speech, my right to bear an arm, whatever right it is. But imagine if I said, you know, I'll willingly give that up if it means I can help one person see Jesus Christ. So go with me to Ephesians 5.15. If you have your Bible, turn to that, Ephesians 5.15. And it says in Ephesians 5.15 that we are to look carefully then how we walk, not as an unwise person, but as a wise person. Now, I don't know Greek, but when I'm studying, I look at what the Greek says. And this Greek word, akrobos, means to be very accurate, to be very exacting, and to investigate something with great care before we go there. That's what a wise person does. That's how a wise person walks. Verse 16 says, we are to make the best use of our time Because the days are evil. Now, I could camp on the days are evil, and I could wax eloquent for half an hour about how horrible the world is today and about how difficult our country is. But we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to spend some really good time on this first section here that you and I are to make the best use of our time. John MacArthur, noted theologian, says, You'll never turn your dreams into reality. You'll never take full advantage of opportunities that God's given you unless you're making the most of those opportunities. Dreams don't become reality. You don't capture opportunities unless you're thinking, walking wisely, and making the most of those opportunities. Here's what Paul does not do in this passage. He does not use the word chronos. He didn't say Make the best use of seconds, minutes, hours, or weeks. That's chronos. That's a clock. He said make the most use of kairos. This is why it's important when you're studying the Bible that you look at what does the word actually mean. And kairos is a word that means a measured, an allocated, fixed season or opportunity of life. You're to make the most of the season of life of where you find yourself right now. Now, as I look out across the crowd, here's what I can see. I can see an elementary school kid. 
I can see a junior high school kid. I definitely see some high school kids and some college students, and I see some of you that are at the beginning of your work cycle, some of you that are in the middle, some of you like me that are on the tail end of it, and I see some that look like maybe you're done working and you're in a retirement phase. Paul said, he doesn't matter what phase of life you're at, you're to make the most use of the time God's given you. Imagine if an elementary school child took a hold of this passage or a kid that goes to this school, junior high school, or a high school student, and they say, this school year, I'm going to make the most of this season of the life that God's given me because I know that the stuff around me is evil. God has set boundaries to our lives, and opportunities for service exist only within those boundaries. I heard on the radio yesterday, time is money. That's baloney. Time ain't money. Time is a commodity that we can never recover. Do you realize that? When it's gone, it is gone. I think of my marriage, greatest day of my life. I still remember my beautiful bride walking down the aisle. I can never go back to that day. I remember when Rachel was born, my oldest daughter, who's 33. I remember when she came out the absolute joy, and then Becca, and then Kristen, and then Joe. When my first granddaughter came out, I held her in my hand. She was so tiny, she fit in my hand and almost didn't hang over. I can't recapture those. I can't recapture graduating. You know that feeling when you're finally done? Or that first job when I proved to my boss I really did know what I was doing, I was recently in Sharpsburg, Maryland. I visited the Antietam battlefield. It stuck with me for two weeks. Every day I woke up with this sense of heaviness in my life, and I could not put my finger on it because I'm not that kind of person. But when I realized as I looked across those beautiful meadows and those cornfields, that that day 22,717 Americans died or were lost, or were wounded. 22,717. We cannot go back to Antietam and do it over again. So we we have this season. We have these opportunities that God's given us. And he says, Paul said, you've got to make the most of them. I'm a 62-year-old PA in in urgent care. I've got to make the most of this time of my life right now. I've got to figure out how to use it to the max for the kingdom of God. So for me, that means when a patient needs a little extra time, when they need to be prayed with or talked to on a spiritual, psychological level, I try to put aside there's three more waiting with other problems, and I invest in that individual in front of me. This message is very poignant for me today because two months ago when I was asked to speak this, I had three brothers. Today I have two. My brother Doug passed away just a few weeks ago. While I was in Africa two weeks ago, the surgeon who took me under his wing and became like my African brother, Tondo Elize, he passed away just the other day. The guy probably helped tens of thousands of Central Africans with surgery. 
James says that our life is like a mist. It appears for a moment and then it's gone. I want everybody to look right here. This is your life. That's your life. Psalm 139 says that written in the book are the days that were formed for me, every one of them. They're written in God's Word. God has written how long Mike Taylor will walk this earth. Psalm says, my days are measured. Job says that man's days are determined the number of months, and he cannot exceed them. Doug Taylor could not exceed 66 years of life, nor could Tondo Elise. One in the developed world with the most advanced medicine dies after a cystoscopy, which isn't supposed to happen. And one in the Central African Republic, the poorest country on the face of the earth, dies, which we expect. That's you and that's me. That's us. We have this fixed period of time that God's given us. And he said the reason we have to pay attention, we've got to walk wisely, we've got to take advantage, is because the days are evil. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago, and they were evil. And they've been evil every day since, and they're evil today. Last week, while you and I were in church, last week, 20 people died in El Paso and 24 were injured. Dayton, Ohio, nine people were murdered and 24 were hurt. And it didn't even make the paper, didn't even make the paper. But last weekend, 52 people were shot with a gun in South Chicago and seven young people died. Last weekend. I went on the news this morning just for the fun of it. They actually had to close a hospital in South Chicago this week because there were so many injuries in the ER, they couldn't triage them fast enough. The days are evil, folks. We know it. But we have this greater command to take advantage of the opportunities God's given us and make the most of them. I believe there's a subtle evilness that goes on every day. We can look at these bad things, but I think there's something even more sinister, and that's for you to waste your life, to not use it for God's glory. Whatever your skill is, whatever you do. Peter says, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I've seen lions in action in Africa. I've watched how they act. They trick animals. They ambush them. They work in teams. And all they want to do is kill and eat. And that's how he's described in our Bible. Corinthians says he's an angel of light, so he looks good. He makes us do things that are, look good, but they harm our life. John says he's a thief. He just comes to steal. So we can't allow that to happen. I want to go through the middle verses in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, a little rapidly so we can get to my verse which is the one I want to talk about today. And that is, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. You know, when I was a kid in college, I still remember, God, please reveal your will to me. What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to marry? What should I be? Well, I don't know what the specific will is that God has for your life, but I do know there are things he has in mind for every single one of us. The first one is that we accept him as our Savior and follow after him. Become a disciple of his. Number two, he encourages us in the next verse to be spirit-filled. 
Now, as a Christian, we believe that at the moment of salvation, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves into our heart. That's what helps us to make the decisions we make, to not do the bad things that we shouldn't do and do the good things we should do. But this filling part is a decision on our part, whether we should be filled or not. In the first service, I shared this. I'm not doing it just because my colleague's here, because he doesn't know this happened. But this week at MedStat, I've been a PA for 38 years. I can count on this hand the number of times that I've gotten angry and lost my temper at work. I just did it this week. Stressful, busy, and a particular individual rattled my cage, and I allowed my cage to be rattled, and I rattled back. I don't do that. I don't yell at my wife. I don't yell at, I used to yell at my kids when they were little, but I quit doing that because they're all big now. I don't yell at people. I don't yell at people at the ticket counter at Delta in the airport in Bangui when my luggage doesn't come out. I just don't do that. It's not how I operate. At the end of the day, I asked the three. I had an, two, two nurses and a, and a radiation technologist. I said, can you three come here? And I said, can you look at me? I said, I have to say I'm sorry. I don't know what got into me. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I raised my voice. Well, I know. Because I chose at that moment not to be submissive to my workmates. And I chose at that moment not to be filled with the Spirit of God, but to be filled with myself. For some reason, I thought at that moment that my needs were greater than the people I was working with or the individual that I was working with. So God's will for us is to accept Him, to be filled with His Spirit. Sanctified is this set apart. This is this growing in your relationship with God the older you get. To be submissive. And then sometimes we're called to suffer on behalf of the kingdom of God. And we all know people that are suffering. My number one friend from Aiken, South Carolina, now has metastatic prostate cancer. My age, we were on the phone ten times this week. He's suffering. He's a pastor. He's, he's told people how to deal with pain his whole life. And yet Pastor Don today is realizing God has asked him, it's God's will for his life right now, that he wants him to suffer right now. And it's a hard thing. We're not to get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This filling is the idea of keep on being filled. It's a moment-by-moment submission to the Spirit's control. And you all know as well as me, we do pretty good. And then every once in a while, we have that moment where we blow it with whoever in whatever situation. Addressing one another, and Taylor Long went over this just a few weeks ago, in psalms, which is putting psalms to music, hymns, which is songs of praise, and spiritual songs, expressing truth, making melody in our heart to God. Always giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we get to the verse that says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Now you have the backstory. Now you have the context of why I went backward. Because in order for you and me to be able to submit, we have to walk as a wise person. We've got to be smart. We've got to be looking around, thinking. We have to make the most of the opportunity we have. 
regardless of where we're at in life. And then we must be filled with the Spirit, and we have to give thanks in order to submit to one another. So what does it mean to submit to each other? If you look at what this Greek word means, it means to be subordinate, reflexively, to obey. It means without conscious thought to put yourself under the rank of another individual. That is un-American, people. To put yourself under the authority of another person. So we have a brother that goes to church here who is a Navy commander. You may not even know this. Fighter pilot. Like my hero. I mean, those people that fly those planes that go five, 600 miles an hour, they have to make split-second decisions. I called him this week and I said, I'm preaching on this passage. You're a military guy. I'm not. Tell me what that means. We had a really nice chat. And I said, tell me what you do when you see somebody that's over you in rank. So he's a commander, which in Army terms is like lieutenant colonel. What do you do when you see a colonel or you see a general? Salute. It's a reflex. What do you do when you're given an order? He said, as long as it's a lawful order, I obey it immediately. But here was the most important part of our conversation. I said to my brother, what do you do for those that are under your authority? You're a commander. Do you have people under you? Oh, yeah, I have people under me. What do you do with them? And here are his exact words. As I lead, I try to lead out of mutual respect for the people who are under my command. Sounds like a 90-year-old lady who said, he ain't the boss and I ain't the boss. Now we have a commander in the Navy who's saying, I'm in charge, but I try to lead out of mutual submission with my fellow uh, Navy people. Now, if you go on, it says we're to, to do this because of our reverence for Jesus Christ. Now, here's a big question for you. When's the last time you were scared of God? When's the last time you had fear in your heart for God? Because this word means fear, terror, alarm, respect, and fright. So I got to thinking about why should I have fear and respect for Jesus Christ? You realize that at the moment of creation, Jesus Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit were present, and they created this universe. So if you read in Isaiah, it says, lift your eyes up tonight. If you're in Africa with me, you can see the Milky Way. You can see every star. It's like you can almost reach out and grab them because there's no light. Look up, and it says that God calls them out one by one. He has named them, and because of his great power and strength, not a single one is missing. That's in Isaiah. In Psalm, it says that he calls the name out, the stars out by name. You know how many stars there are? With the Hubble telescope, we now know there are 10 to the 32nd power. So 10, 32 zeros after are the stars that we have seen. And we know, and we know there are more. I just thought of this. How's that possible? That he knows them by name. Let me tell you why I know it's true. I work with the human body every single day. When I used to work in surgery in Africa, and my buddy Jerry was in orthopedics for 15 years, when you cut somebody open and you go in, all the stuff's in the right place. 
unless they're that one person that apparently is different. And we have people like that every day that have just a slight deviation from the way God created the body. Some of it's due to illness, some of it's genetics. But that Jesus that you and I are to have reverence for, he made this body. And I'm going to just take three pieces of anatomy. And if you are not amazed by this and in awe of this, you need another cup of coffee. You have a 10-ounce muscle sitting right, in the, right here in your chest. Ten ounces. It is a self-lubricating, self-regulating, high-capacity pump. It will pump 60 million gallons of blood in your lifetime. And at 14 weeks of conception in your, in your mother's womb, that little pump is pumping 7 gallons of blood a day. In you, 2,000 gallons a day. When's the last time you told it to pump? Pump, pump, pump. 72 times. Average is 70 to 100. When's the last time? Jesus Christ, the Father, they created the world. They created us. Evolution, garbage. There's no way that this fell together. The eyeball. Your iris, on average, has 266 identifiable structures. When I use a slit lamp and look at your iris when we're looking for corneal abrasions, sometimes the patients don't know it, but in my mind I'm going, man, this is cool. I wish you could see this. It's like looking at mountains as you look at the muscle structure, and yet no iris is the same. Irises are not the same. That's why iris scanning is so much better than fingerprinting. Each eye has a million nerve fibers, and you will blink 400 million times before you die, if you live to be 80. When's the last time you told yourself to blink and put tears in your eye? It's called autonomics. God just said, when you popped out of mom, all that stuff started working. And your ear, which is amazing to me, your tympanic membrane, which is the eardrum, is thinner than this piece of paper. God made your external canal so that as it goes down to your eardrum, it narrows. It amplifies sound a thousand times. Your eardrum has behind it three of the smallest bones in the body. They're called ossicles. They will fit on the head of a dime. And yet when your eardrum starts moving, those ossicles vibrate. They send a signal to your hearing organ. And guess what? Your hearing organ has 20,000 keys. That piano has 88. And you have 100,000 hair cells in the middle of your ear. So when you get dizzy, we have a special trick to help make that situation better. That's who we're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence to. Jesus Christ, the creator of your body. Jesus was the most amazing example of submission. It says... When he was just a boy, he submitted to his mother and father. Remember that? When he was, he was left teaching and they left him in Jerusalem, they came back to find him. He said, hey, sorry, he submitted to mom and dad. Philippians chapter 2, I didn't put it on the screen. If you have your Bible or you have your iPhone, go to Philippians chapter 2. And listen to what it says about this Jesus that created us. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I have spent weeks studying the crucifixion from a medical perspective. Crucifixion was not a static death. Crucifixion is a dynamic death. You die over the course of two to three days on a Roman cross. Christ died in a matter of hours. Because he was so brutally, brutally beaten for you and me. He willingly said, I will go to the cross for you. Matthew 26 says, when he was in the garden, Jesus himself said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he fell to the ground. Luke 22, Luke was a doctor. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. The guy was a medical doctor. And he said, Father, this is what Luke said, Jesus said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. Submission to death on a cross. Luke 22 says, And being in anguish, he prayed earnestly, and his sweat became as drops of blood. I have never seen hematidrosis, but hematidrosis is a medical condition. Hematidrosis is an opening of the pores, and under periods of severe stress and anguish, people actually bleed into their sweat. It's been recorded in medicine. You can Google it, you can read it. Hematidrosis. Our Savior knew the following was about ready to happen to him. Listen to what happened to Jesus when he submitted and went to the cross. He was spit upon. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was bound. He was blindfolded. He had thorns crammed into his head, deprived of food, water, and sleep. His wrists, not his hands, his wrists, because the Romans knew the median nerve is right there. And they knew that he had eight carpal bones, which would hold his body. It would not hold if you put a spike right here. His wrists and his feet were spiked with a spike. And they knew right where the nerves were. And that's exactly where they put the nail. Because they wanted to inflict the greatest amount of pain. And when they popped him on the cross, his shoulders became dislocated. And when a shoulder's dislocated, let me tell you, Jerry and I take care of this. Those people scream in agony when you try to put it back in place. Scream. And yet the only way Jesus could breathe was to push up on his feet, take a breath of air, and then slink back down. And he did this on a cross. It was dynamic. He moved up and down. He suffered shock, respiratory, and cardiac failure, dehydration, severe contusions, and his wounds were probably infected in a matter of hours just before he died. And it says you and I are to submit to one another, mutual submission, out of reverence and love and awe for this creator who went to the cross for you and for me. I want to conclude with what I would consider a vivid example of this being applied. So I think many of you know that I work in Africa, and um, um, when I work in Africa, I got to follow African customs. I work in Central Africa. And so I have a grandmother in Africa, we call her Ata, A-T-A, which is Grandma Ansango, Ata Debona. 
And Atta's 90, and she has really bad arthritis, and she has a stick just like me. This is my African stick. I brought it home. And when Atta comes to you, she walks really slow with her stick, and then she always lays it on the ground, and then she stands back up, and she comes at you. Sorry. With two hands... If you look at the picture, she then cuckoo, which means to bend. And because of my mutual respect for Atta, I cuckoo. I'm not supposed to. Okay, in that culture. She cuckoo, I cuckoo. Two hands, and I have two hands. And then she does the following every single time. Baba, bisambela tenti molenge timbi Mike, bimu merci tenti logana san trafik timu maboko na ajo tikodro timbi, na bisambela si faremo unganguna lona sejuti logena san trafik, and she goes on and on, praying for me, and then she kisses my hands. So I, I thought of that. Paul told us in Romans, Corinthians, and Thessalonians that we're to greet one another with a holy kiss. Let me tell you the beauty of mutual submission. They're going to show you the next picture. This is us with Atta. And this is a picture I just took a week ago of my wife holding her hand. Atta speaks Pana, we speak Sango. So when she prays, I don't know what she prays. And when Myra sits with her, they can't talk unless somebody comes and translates. And for half an hour, they just sit there, hand in hand. Don't see black, don't see white, don't see African, don't see American, don't see poor, don't see rich. What you see is mutual submission out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Because she has the same gospel that we do because a missionary told her family 80 years ago, 90 years ago, 100 years ago. I think when you and I walk as wise people, I think that when we are making the most of our current situation, we're not just plodding along. I think that when we're filled with the Spirit, when we're giving thanks, when we submit to one another out of reverence, our eyes are open to the needs around us. In this next slide is a young girl named Findere. Myra and I were at Gamoko, which is a remote village, and we were ready to leave, and Myra said, Mike, you got to go see this little girl. Something is wrong with her. So I looked at her, and I thought, you know, is it cardiac? Is it, re- is it kidney? So I put my scope on her, no heart murmur. I said, you know, this girl's probably just starving. This protein deficiency, maybe some kidney deficiency. So we sent her to the pediatric ward in Bangui. That's the same little girl a month later after some good nutrition. Same little girl. Matthew 9 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed. And he said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers into this harvest field. 
And I am so thankful that my wife saw that little girl because we gave her a year of life, of good life, and she, come, she succumbed to her disease. But here's the best part of the story. This just happened a week ago. The next slide. I'm in a remote village. Look around. I mean, you can see grass huts. You see mud. You see pots and pans on the ground. There's a, a pot of meat there that somebody's getting ready to cook. And up walks Finderi's mother, who I haven't seen in two years. She heard I was in the village. People, she had a basket with bananas and limes in it. And when she walked up to me, she leaned over and she offered them to me. And I leaned over with both hands because in Africa, when you get a gift, you use both hands. And I took them from her and thanked her. And all she said was, thank you for helping my daughter. I'm grateful that my wife had eyes to see and that we could help make some of Finderi's days good. But here's the real story in this picture. I calculated that when I go to work at 7 a.m. by noon, I make more money than she makes in one year. Now, I either make a lot of money or she doesn't make very much or a combination of the two. She probably brings home $100 in one year and she brought me a gift. Do you see the beauty of mutual submission out of reverence for Jesus Christ? There's an author that I love. His name is Mark Batterson, and I will finish with these two slides. At the end of our lives, our greatest regrets will be the God-ordained opportunities we left on the table, a God-given passion we didn't pursue, and a God-sized dream we didn't go after because we let fear dictate. Most people believe God is real, but few people actually live like it. The result is a widening gap between their theology and their reality. May the theology that you hear in this series not be a wide gap between what you hear and what you practice. When you raise your hands on Sunday in praise to God, reach out to others on Monday in service to God. You know, I'll finish with this African proverb. If you're thinking about, oh man, I wished I'd have done this or that, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is today. And as the praise band comes out, I'll just close us in a quick word of prayer. Thank you for being here today. God, thank you so much for the worship, for the giving of tithes and offerings, and then of hearing a message from your word, and then finally being able to sing praises to you again. We commit this service to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.